Well, one of the things that is continuously a, a part of starting a, a new study and then we return to parts of it and add to it as we go is the background. So why is the book here, where did it come from, and all those kinds of things. And the book of Esther is uh, a book that um, contains the account of a woman who, uh, as a Jewish woman, finds herself through a series of events becoming the queen uh, of the Persian Empire. Medo-Persian Empire, if you want to use the historical term. And as a result, uh, she is able to protect her people from destruction by the government, uh, by people in the government at least. It's one of two books in the Bible that contains uh, a titling after a main character that's a woman. Ruth is the other book in the scriptures that is... Uh, titled After a Woman. Esther has always been accepted uh, as part, uh, as, as, as uh, the person it is and accepted as part of the, the canon, part of the groups of scripture that the uh, Jews saw as scripture and, and also carried forward to the New Testament. But that's not without a little bit of controversy. One of the things that's interesting about Esther it's one book, and there are others, but uh, has no t New Testament reference to it. A lot of books have uh, a quote that either Jesus or one of the apostles made uh, to um, show that they were referencing that forward into the New Testament arena. Esther doesn't. The name Esther uh, in, in the Hebrew was Hadassah, and it means myrtle. Um, and uh, the title Esther comes more from uh, the Greek. The author's unknown. There are a number of suggestions about who may have written this. And one is Mordecai, who will be a key player in our account. He is a cousin of hers. Another is Ezra, and another is Nehemiah. And you've heard of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we'll talk a little bit more about them as we do this introduction this morning. But they were very much involved as the uh, people of Israel that had been displaced over into, initially in the Babylonian conquest, uh, the kingdom of Judah was, was taken to Babylon. That's Daniel and that group. Um, and then some more were taken, but they're also, as the Babylonian Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians, then, then some found themselves over in the Persian Empire, and that's where this is set. Whoever wrote it had detailed knowledge of Persian customs, their etiquette, their history, and even their palace at Sushan. Um, the book is also written with a lot of emphasis on Hebrew calendar and customs, so you get both of those mixed together subtly in the background of the book and so they say well whoever wrote it had to know the Hebrew life as well as the life under Persia when they were there so when was the book uh, written well the events of the book would come in as 17th chronologically of the Old Testament and only Ezra Nehemiah and the book of Malachi have things that occurred after 
the time of the book of Esther. And the book ends at a time when it seems like it's close to the reign ending of Xerxes or Harasserus, who was the Persian king that, that all that's going on in all of this story, uh, this account. So when was the book written? Well, somewhat after that because um, of, of some of the events that we see have occurred, but others haven't, with places at about the mid-5th century B.C., about uh, 465. Uh, in 331 B.C., Greek conquered Persia, Greece did. And so as a result of that, it has to be before then, but it also has to be uh, after the end of the reign of Assyrasaurus I, and who we commonly in a lot of literature would be hear him referred to as Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S, Xerxes. Uh, he, would, he would be followed by Xerxes II, and so that's... That's a little bit of quick, quick history. Now, I gave you a handout today. I hope you picked one up as you came in. If you didn't, you might want to grab one. It's hard to keep everything put together. I, I want to turn to that handout on this side and the bottom, the bottom portion to begin with. There's a, a lot of things on there that tend to give you a little bit of a timeline of what went on in... Israel from the time of Josiah uh, up until about 400 BC and so in in uh, uh, the beginning at first it shows Josiah 640 it talks about the fall of Nineveh in uh, in this is all BC times now so the numbers get smaller as you get closer to today so the fall of Nineveh was about 612 Nebuchadnezzar comes in at 605 and he's the one that um, takes over. Nineveh was a part of the Babylonian Empire. He's the one that comes to power and really comes in and conquers Judah, the southern kingdom. And the first deportation, that's the one that Daniel is in, begins in 597. Jerusalem isn't fully conquered yet. <clears throat> and the, Jerusalem finally falls in 586 B.C. And so then... During the book of Daniel period, you can see up at the top which book of the Bible lines up with that. Uh, Jeremiah covers that first part. Daniel covers the part in there about um, what goes on in Babylon. And Belshazzar follows Ebuchadnezzar as the ruler of Babylon. He will fall to Cyrus in 539. And it's under Cyrus that... Uh, they begin to build, rebuild the temple. Now, this isn't the rebuilding under Nehemiah or Ezra. This is a rebuilding that was done by the Medo-Persians, um, and uh, the conquerors. So Cyrus really is functioning more from Babylon at that point. But anyway, we keep going. Darius takes over. The temple's completed in 517. I will tell you that part at the bottom with Cyrus and Darius I, you can create arguments among historians about just how all that happened, but I'm not expert enough to talk about it. But they complete their version of rebuilding the temple. <clears throat> now, the, the person in our um, 
study today is Xerxes, which is also Erasmus. I said that wrong. I have to look at it when I say it. Uh, Ahasuerus, and he comes to power in 487. In 480, you see Esther being made queen. So that begins to cut, that, that's when you start seeing the events found in the book of Esther is uh, somewhere between 487 and 480. Artaxerxes followed Esther in four, or followed Xerxes in 465. He is the son of Xerxes. He is Ahasuerus. I'll get it down. Ahasuerus the second. He's actually the fourth child of Xerxes. And interestingly enough, a son of uh, his deposed queen. Um, and so um, <clears throat> you can see later Nehemiah returns uh, in 446 and again in 443. And, and so you've got Ezra back there in 458 if you look at the top part of that. So this, this book of Esther occurs under the Medo-Persian reign, the temple's already been worked on. Things have happened with Ezra and Nehemiah back in Jerusalem. Uh, it's not all done yet by any means, and, and that's kind of the way it works. Now, we can, we can narrow down the events of Esther a little bit by looking at the top thing that I, that I put for you there. And these are a little bit approximate, but some of them are pretty good. Uh, 486 is when Erasuerus succeeds Darius as a Medo-Persian ruler. So if you go down, if you look down below, you would have seen that. Uh, they say 487 in the timeline below, 486. Um, so it's, it's in that range real close. It's 483 where the book of Esther begins, and we see that covers Esther 1, 3 through 2, 4. And... Vashti and all of that story is a part of that time period. In between Vashti and Esther, and one of the things that happens is, I don't mean Esther as a book, I mean Esther as a person coming on the scene. One of the things that happens is uh, Xerxes thinks he's the most powerful man on earth. And so he is um, overprotecting his... Um, perceived on his part for the most part influence in Asia Minor up in the area that you would find Greece having some authority and he decides that he's tired of these Grecian people uh, influencing uh, Asia Minor and so he goes up and they fight a really tough war and uh, Xerxes is thoroughly defeated it's very expensive and it's very difficult and so he and his defeated army go home. And that's when things start then with, well, we need a new queen. And so <clears throat> Esther and, and some of the stuff with Vashti may have been happening. That we believe, when we get in chapter one, we'll talk more about that. But Esther comes on the scene in 216. That's about 479 uh, to 478. And then Esther 3.7 covers uh, 474, February, March. And you can see that the bulk of the book then covers from February down into just a few months at a time, which each of the chapters, until you get to the very end of the book where it shows that Harasuerus is assassinated 
that's what happens. The book doesn't say that, but it talks about harass, uh, a harasser in kind of the past tense. And so we believe that the last part of the chapter of the book of last chapter of Esther closes out his reign as well. And so that kind of gives you a little bit of a, a realization that some of the things in the book happen really quick, and then there's a little bit of a time gap here and there. And so we'll, we'll work our way through that. Um, an interesting thing about the book of Esther, there is no reference to God or any of God's names. He's never mentioned by name. He's never directly given uh, a role in all of this, and yet his role is significantly implied at various points in time and even in terms of how uh, Mordecai talks about what the situation is it's clear that he's looking at God to do things but but it's uh, not there there were some concerns um, at various times about should Esther be considered part of the canon and one of the significant hesitations on some groups parts was the fact that we'll see Esther lives out somewhat of a Gentile type living as Jews would look at it she lets herself become part of the harem lets herself don't know that she had a choice but she becomes part of the harem and eventually becomes queen and nowhere along the way during that part of it does she say oh by the way do you know I'm a Jew and so that that lack of Jewishness bothered some people about about making this part of the canon so it's apparent gentile living um as a matter of fact the septuagint you know what the septuagint is the septuagint is a greek language old testament um, as the world became more greek speaking um, the septuagint was put together in order to to help with that and the, in the Septuagint there are actually 107 verses added and in these 107 verses it addresses some of these concerns including putting in some of the names of God and even has Esther at some point talking about how much she hates her life style her life what she's done with her life being as a part of that didn't have any choice and so they that they that they try to address that with those 107 verses, but by and large, that those extra verses are not accepted by, by Jews and certainly not by, by Christians. Um, there is a Jewish megalith. I've not heard of this before, but I'm not surprised. Maybe I've not heard of it by this term, but there are five small scrolls that the Jews use, and they include Ruth, Esther, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and Lamentations. They call these the writings, and that's probably what I've heard it under in my previous um, minor experiences with the Old Testament. <clears throat> these scrolls, each individually, are read publicly in the synagogue yearly to coincide with special events. Esther, the book of Esther, Esther is read at the celebration of Purim. It's a holiday that actually starts as a result of the events in the book of Esther, so it makes a lot of sense to go back and reread the account of what happened, and this is what we're celebrating. Uh, much like at Christmas time, we're going to read uh, passages that have to do with the birth of Christ. At Easter, we're going to talk about his crucifixion and resurrection. We're going to go back and look at those passages. 
Well, they used Esther in that role as one of the writings for the Feast of Purim. Okay. Oh, come on, fingers. All right. So that's kind of the background I bring to you of Esther. Now, there's some other... I'm fascinated with the book of Esther a little bit. Um, Because of some of the tentacles it has... um, with regard to some of the people in the story, but I'm going to save, save that. As those people come up, uh, the biggest one will be Haman. Uh, we'll take some time to go back and look at, okay, let's look at historically who are Haman's ancestors. But today, let's go ahead and look at Esther chapter 1. Questions, comments so far? And we'll see how far we get with chapter 1. Maybe we'll get the whole chapter done. I don't really expect to, but we'll see. We'll see where we get to and um, deal with it that way. And I'd, I'd really like a volunteer to read for us Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Who can be that volunteer for us? 1 through 9? Thank you. So there's some real, with if you if you picture some of the background, there's some real interesting statements in this first part. It starts out with Ahasuerus. Uh, it says he reigns from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Provinces, and the interesting thing about this is, prior to this time, they probably wouldn't have used Ethiopia as the outer limit border of his kingdom. It probably would have been the Mediterranean Sea or something up in there, but he just went up and lost what influence he had up there. So we know that because it was after the third year of his reign. Uh, Well, it was in the third year of his reign, and it's early in his reign that he went up there and tried to assert himself and got whooped. And so he is home, and what does he do? Well, he has this grand uh, party, feast. He gave a feast there in verse uh, 3 for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia was there. This is not a small feast. Uh, And the nobles and the governors of the provinces were for him. So he's home after a defeat and 
What's a defeated king to do? Well, this defeated king decides, okay, we're going to see how grand a party we can have. Maybe we'll kind of get over this, this uh, uh, mess that we've got from this war that didn't go so well. So this is his way of licking his wounds, if you were to use a vernacular. And so what does he do? He gets out all the riches of his glory. Okay, I can't tell you about our great success up there uh, against the Grecian people, but let's look at all the wonderful things that we have here that's a part of my, my rule here. And there's a lot of splendor and pomp for 180 days. He took half a year for this little get-together trying to bolster things for either himself or in the eyes of his people or whatever. And when the days were completed, he gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting seven days in the courts of the garden of the king's palace. If we go back to this sheet, because I wasn't sure where it was, but you can see that Persia, by the way, equals Iran, right? Well, Susa is a winter palace or a winter headquarters. And... He apparently really likes it. That's where he's spending his time. And you can see it's there in uh, western Iran, just about in modern-day Iraq. And so that's where Susa is. And he is there uh, throwing this grand party. And in the party, he's got things on display. And uh, we read it a minute ago, but let's listen to this. There were white cotton curtains violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods, marble pillars, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, I don't know how to say that, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. So if you were to see this picture, I mean this is this is opulence at its max, right? What's a couch of gold? Did they make it out of solid gold? They did, and still do, I guess, probably in the world, make golden threads. Maybe they made a fabric weave out of gold. Um, I don't know what it was, but even in streets we have paved with mother of pearl, uh, precious stones, uh, purple. Uh, I think, I know I've mentioned this in here before, but I saw a video one time of what it took to make purple. And it's a nasty, nasty, nasty job and process. That's why it was so expensive. It starts with shellfish that you basically ferment and do other things. And eventually you get to the point you can dip the fabric in it and you'll get purple. But it's nasty stuff. So only royalty had it because the only way you could get it was to pay somebody a lot of money to do this nasty, nasty work. Um, the guy that does the show, and I'm sorry, I'm not real big on this stuff, but the show of Nasty Jobs, you all know who that is, right? Micro. Yeah, Micro. He was doing a little bit of one of them I saw on this, and his comment was, you know, this is nasty. And I really don't want to put my hands in this, but I have to. And I really don't want to do this, but I have to. He says, but honestly, the worst is the smell. So it was, it was a pretty nasty job. Of course, he makes the most of the nastiness. So here's the king, and he's got everything out. And at the end of the 180 days, now we're going to have a seven-day feast. So apparently, seven days, continual feasting. Um, and to show their worldliness, I guess I would say, 
That's, that's my way of spinning it or looking at it. In verse 8, they said, And drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. You want to drink it up, drink it up. You don't have to, but here it is. Take all you want kind of a thing. Now, in the midst of all this, we can, we can surmise by the next statement that this is a party for the men. Because also at the same time there in verse 9, Queen Vashti gave a feast for all the women of the palace that belonged to the king. And so Queen Vashti is the queen. We don't have a lot of history, although there's history in the world. I mean, this, a, a lot of the information that I gave you as background didn't come from biblical sources. Well, they did for me in a sense. They were people who were commenting about Scripture. I mean, but it wasn't worldly. But, but these are, this is part of the history of the world. I don't know where Queen Vashti came from, but she was a previous queen. And as a matter of fact, she, when, when she's giving this party, we'll talk about it in a little bit, uh, but very possibly she was pregnant at that time with the fourth son of the king who would become Xerxes II, which is really interesting when you realize that she's about to be banished. Um, so let's go ahead and let's take a look at the rest of the chapter. Uh, so I will be looking for somebody to help us read uh, 10 through the rest of that chapter. Somebody would at least start us out. Gary, can you be elected? Okay. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Vista, Arbona, Victa, and Epitha, Dethar, and Zarkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Hesarius, to bring Queen Vashtida, Vashti, Vashti, to the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes of her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. The queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat at first at the kingdom, in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? because she had not performed the command of the king Hasarius delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memekin said in his presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Hasarius. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Asherius commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the 
queen's behavior will say to all of the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let the royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come for King Hasseris. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed through all his kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and princesses, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, so that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. All right. So now we get the royal marriage fight here. And it starts out with on the seventh day. Well, now, what had they been doing for 180 plus seven days? Partying and drinking and whatever. Now, we don't have any account as to what level of consumption the king may have been involved in. But uh, it does say he was what? Merry with wine. I think that's real close, if not actually a euphemism for drunk. He was, he was feeling the wine. Clearly, that would be a good way of saying it. And so he's got these seven eunuchs, and he gets these guys together and say, Hey, go get the queen. Now, we know his purpose because bring her in. Bring her in with the royal crown in order to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So he wants to show off his queen to all of this party that's been going on for 187 days. Now, I don't know what the culture was like enough in Persia to figure this out, but I'm guessing most women are going to be, oh man, this, 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 is not, this is not going to actually be very respectful to me. He wants me to come in there in front of all his drunken party to be shown off. And there's another very real possibility because when they look at the historical records of the times of births as best they can figure out within the Medo-Persian Empire, it's very possible if not probable that she is fairly pregnant with Xerxes, who becomes Xerxes II. And so she may have also had that as a part of I'm not going into his drunken party, however many months pregnant, to be shown off with a crown. This is silly. But it may have been all kinds of other things. Maybe she was a stubborn woman. Maybe whatever. I don't know. But for multiple reasons, potentially, she refused. And, of course, the, this had come through the eunuchs. So can, you can imagine the eunuchs came back and said, uh, she said no. Now... I think it would have probably been an interesting conversation amongst the eunuchs that went something like, you tell him. No, I'm not telling him. You tell him. Now, Brodom was probably the head eunuch. And so probably went, I don't have any choice. I'll tell him. But, um, and we see the reaction, and I think it's fairly predictable. 187 days of partying with a major party at the end lasted seven days. And what's his reaction? He became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, you've got a guy who's feeling the wine, who was merry a little bit ago, 
He's not merry now. What happens to people that are feeling wine and their emotions and reactions? They generally tend to be more extreme, right? Been around the world enough to see that. And so now, instead of having a king marry with wine, you've got a king that is probably scary with wine because how's he going to react? What's he going to do now? And it probably was put a little bit of a damper on all the partying for a bit, maybe for a long bit, because we're at the end of the seven days. Maybe this is how it all ends. So the king gets together his wise men and said, who knew the time. So these are the guys that keep up with what's going on in the world, what's happening, what do we need to do, advisors. Daniel became one of these advisors uh, back in his day for more than one king. Uh, but he said this was the king's procedure for all those who were versed in law and judgment. So he's not only going to these men for advice, but he's going, and going how does this fit into the laws that we have? And the laws of the Median Persians were a little bit of a challenge, and they were also in other countries. In the Babylonian country, you have some situations where once the law is said, it cannot be repealed, and we're going to see that as a part of what's said here. But so he gets these men together, and the ones that were closest to him were the seven princes of Persia and Media. So they were the, they were in the Medio Persian Empire, they were the right hand men for the king. They're the ones who, quote, saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So they're, they're the, his cabinet, if you will, maybe. I don't know if that's a good analogy except that they've got a lot more influence than, than the modern-day government cabinet that we have. And he's got a question for them. It isn't written as a question necessarily in the New American Standard, but according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Who's asking this question? The king. He's looking at these guys going, all right, lawyers. I'm not happy with what happened here. They know that, whether he said it or not. But what's to be done to her? She didn't do what I said. And don't know what he expected. If he was expecting to say, well, we already have a law in the books. Let's just do what it says. Or what, but uh, apparently Mimukin is the guy that speaks up. Was he in charge? Maybe. Don't know. But he's the guy that's credited with speaking up here. And he speaks up in the presence of the king and the officials. So everybody's listening. Now you've got a drunk king, at least one under the influence to some level, who has a lot of power. Uh, we will see before this is done, he has power over life and death in many situations. And so here he is saying, all right, guys, take a stand. This is not exactly the best moment to be taking a stand unless, as a part of your wisdom, you're pretty good at figuring out, okay, what can I say here that will kind of give us a place to go and the king's going to like it? So is he worried about justice? What is he worried about? Probably one thing he's worried about is keeping his head on. But this is what he says. Uh, now, king, this isn't just against you. What does he say? What's his message here? It's not against just the king. It's against all of us. Yeah, we men just took a hit. You might be the one in the public seeing it, but this this is going to disrupt our households. 
<laughs> we're used to, uh, I can help you guys out later. We'll, 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 we'll solve. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're used to, we say it and that's what happens. And, and we know a lot in these cultures that was pretty much how it was. And so, um, they're, they're, I, I found it interesting here, it says, it's not only against the king and all the officials of the peoples who are in the provinces of the king, but it's against everybody. It's going to be made known to all women. I didn't know they had Facebook then, but apparently. <laughs> and I'm not saying just women use Facebook, by the way. But it was some way it's going to get out there. And they're going to look at their husbands with contempt. I don't have to do what you say. Since they will say, well, if the king commanded the queen to be bought for him and she didn't come, then I don't have to do anything. You know, it, it really is a, a, uh, an un, it, it's a women's lib gone wrong uh, because it's going to create contempt. You don't want contempt in the home. Whether, whether you're having a man act like uh, king of the world or not, the, the solution isn't going to be to bring contempt. But this is what he thinks is going to have. And not only that, there will be wrath aplenty. You just, we just saw something that's going to start a fight in every house in the, in, the, in the empire. So here's a good solution. And of course, if it pleased the king, we have to start there. Because if it doesn't please the king, then we didn't do well. And if you say, if it pleased the king, do you mean, well, this might be a bad idea if you don't like it? No, what he means is, I'm hoping this pleases you. And he's, he's buttering the king up when you say something like this. You know, if it's pleasing to you, let's do this. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. So once they put something into law and it's written, the king cannot undo it. And what are we going to put in the law? Vashti is never again to come before the king. So, how does this get applied? It, does that mean she can't be in the kingdom? Because she is she exiled? Well, the only thing that's really said here is she can't come before the king. But um, how's she going to be treated? I mean, to some extent, I would say it's going to push her toward an exile. And let the king give her royal position to his another that is better than she. Now, how are you going to define better? One that does what she's told. And so when the decree is made by the king, you know, I understand he's the king and they just had a fight. But really, when the decree is made, we're going to proclaim it through all the kingdom because it's vast. He's buttering the king up some more. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now, I mean, let's just think practically. Is this going to cause women to give, uh, the word was, honor? No, they're going to get obedience maybe, but I don't know that they're going to get more honor. But anyway, this advice pleased the king because they're going to give it to everybody. He sent letters to all the... I wouldn't publicize my fight even if I was a king like this. But anyway, he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own in its own script, meaning its own language, and its own written language, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So what's the end result? We're going to tell everybody 
uh, about this, and and everybody's going to have rules in their house that says the man's in charge, not just in charge, but you know it's kind of the how high answer. You say jump, and I say how high. So you know. Uh, this went much quicker than I thought it would. I didn't think we'd even get through this whole first chapter. Um, so here's what you know is presented. The chief, the chief man, uh, his of his advisors is there saying, "This be a good idea," and clearly it pleased the king, and that's what happened. Sure, I probably don't have an answer, but. You look at the, the advice of the advisors to like publicly, basically publicly shame Vashti, disobeying, mm-hmm. uh, and then send the decree out for validation. Really, I mean, it really, in my in my view, highlights the emphasis that their culture places on uh, the hierarchy within the family, but also like the structure of the family as a means to s- social stability for the nation itself. Well, and I think yeah. if you look at the argument, that's that's the argument. You know. Uh, the slippery slope is Vashti disobeyed here and all of our households are going to crumble because, you know, the, the women aren't in their place or whatever. And so, yeah, it's just interesting to observe that they place the emphasis on the social unit and the, and the family. Well, and we, you know, we've lived through uh, various cultural inputs into who we are. And, and we would see this way over the top, wouldn't we? I mean, we, we would not expect that... Uh, if we called our wives in to put them on public display because they're pretty and we want everybody to see we got a pretty wife, so to speak. Uh, I mean, cl- clearly he's in this mode of look at me and look what I've got and I'm, I'm top of the heap. Um, th- that, that just would be distasteful in most every, every situation. Now, there are people that do it. I mean, you've heard the term, tro- term trophy wife and, and sometimes that is a piece of what happens. Uh, but. Um, you know, we, we wouldn't we wouldn't see this well. Now we know when we get by the time we get to the time of Christ, you know, here's Joseph looking at Mary, and he's going to put her away privately, quietly, until the Holy Spirit intervenes. Says, no, this isn't your path you want to take. But you know, there, there male-dominated societies have been been fairly common, and um, I mean, structure in the home is part of what we read in the New Testament. But if you read it, you're not going to behave this way. I mean, if you read what Paul said um, about how to treat a wife and have a family and how a woman is to respond to her husband, this didn't fit. Um, But neither did a 187-day party. So, you know, there's lots of inputs here to make a mess of this, and one of them being the wine. And when we get into chapter 2 next time, which I'm not prepared to start today, but when we get into chapter 2 next time, we're going to see that it isn't said, but it kind of looks like maybe the king is regretting um, his separation from his queen uh, a bit. But so here you have this, this kind of, and you're right. I mean, there is, I mean, we want honor, we want order in our homes, don't we? I mean, the best order is to be following what we read. It's biblical to follow what we read uh, from Paul in the New Testament about the roles. There are biblical roles for a husband and a wife in a home. And we see those disrupted. 
clear back from what we studied in Genesis, and part of the curse is, is uh, that disruption tendency in our own hearts toward the role. So, but I, 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 yeah, so you're right. I mean, and the other thing I would say is every tyrant's got some sort of logic for what he's, what he's doing is best for everybody. I mean, he may, whether he believes it or not, I think he might believe it here, but there's always an argument that's made that, oh, my, my Dacronian move here is best for everybody. We just, we just have to do this and everybody would be better off for it. So I don't know if I answered your, your comment very well or not. I don't know if I got a question or not. Yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah. interesting to, to see their, the practical wisdom of, you know, like, just thinking about the social implications of... This, well, I don't... I, not, not that they were in the right or not that he was in the right, yeah. but just, like, I don't know that the writing here is intending to say that either one of these worldly people were in the right completely or in the wrong completely. What should Vashti have done? I don't know. Um, she may have done exactly what any reasonable woman in that era would have done, and the king didn't like it. Um, maybe she should have said, you tell the king I'll meet privately with him and say, eh, I'm not doing this. You know, I don't know. Of course. <clears throat> the king, as we're going to see as we move through, you don't go before the king unless he summons you. So to say something like that probably isn't going to work either. You can't do anything to diminish the stature of the king without taking your own life to be at risk. So, yeah. So, so this is the starting point for the, for the book of Esther. Um, and that is that the king gets very frustrated with Vashti at the end of his 187 days of partying, and the end result is that because she didn't do what he asked, she's no longer the queen, and is going to be replaced by another, is the intent at this time, and um, that's going to be what sets the stage for the account of what happened with Esther and the king. Questions, comments that you haven't already said? Well, this is going to be an interesting book for me to teach because uh, some of the story is going to go pretty quickly. Some of the tentacles will take a little bit of time. And uh, so chapter 3 is where we'll really start getting into some of those tentacles pretty much. So let me close with a word of prayer, and uh, we will go from there. Father, um, as we have begun this book, uh, we are anticipating a chance to see not only uh, how you work, but how that fits into history, history for the Jews in particular. Uh, Lord, lead us into truths and let us, Lord, find wisdom in our own life as a result of looking at what people do in this story, this account of what really happened, including their obedience and their willingness to put themselves on the line for the right thing and uh, to lead people to follow you in maybe even an indirect way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.